Tonight we are in the book of Jonah, and uh, how many of you guys have ever, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Jonah? Just generally familiar with the story of Jonah. Okay, most people in the room, um, maybe a few of you are less so, and that's fine. That's fine. We're going to go through, especially the first part of it tonight. Um, but when I say Jonah and, how would you fill in the blank? The whale, right? Um, all of us, uh, or most of us, have been impacted by this story, but we've heard it kind of in a Sunday school context. Um, we probably hear this story more between the ages of 0 to 10 than we do from 11 to whenever, okay? Um, we, as adults, we often don't talk about the story of Jonah, and that's a real shame. Um, it's a real shame. Uh, in fact, the story of Jonah, if you really want to understand the story of Jonah, uh, I think that a lot of the elements of it really take um, an adult's understanding, takes a more mature understanding to be able to grasp the elements of Jonah. Because Jonah is, in fact, one of the most unique books in the Bible. Um, the book of Jonah, from everything from the uh, way that it's written to the characters involved, every piece of the book of Jonah really jumps off the page when you have the appropriate context for it. And so tonight, I want to take a look at the book of Jonah. I want to try to understand it as the original audience would understand it. And I want to walk away just from chapter number one. Let me say this, okay? As we get into this, all right, the story, it's not about the fish, Okay. So if you're expecting about the big epic tale of, we're going to touch it at the very end, um, but we're not going to spend a lot of time in the fish, because Jonah is not about the fish. Uh, but in fact, Jonah is this really fascinating story about a man called by God to do something who uh, under no circumstances wants to obey and wants to follow God. That doesn't remind us of anybody in particular, right? Um, especially not the person in the mirror. Um, and the book of Jonah, in fact, as I say, that the book of Jonah, the piece of literature that Jonah is, it's actually considered satire. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with the term satire, if I use the term satire? Okay, I'm going to explain it for any of you who uh, maybe aren't as familiar with it. Um, satire is, uh, basically what happens in satire is the object of the story, the primary character of the story, is raised up as an object of ridicule as an object to be looked down on or felt bad for or something that they are doing is worthy of criticism. And that's the superficial piece of satire. Underneath the surface is satire exists uh, to try to enact some kind of a change. Um, satire exists with a purpose. It's not just making fun of someone. It's lifting this person up for ridicule in an attempt to change a culture or change a way of thinking. Um, so uh, let, me give you some, let me give you some examples of satire. Slim's got a couple examples of satire back there. Let's just start from the beginning. Um, man fakes own death to escape group chat. All right? Element of truth. How many of you guys have ever been stuck in a group text? All right? How many of you guys were ready to do something like this in the group text, right? Thank you, Apple, for inventing mutes on text groups, right? Saved some of our friendships. Um, and so this is what is this piece of satire. It's not a true story, but there's enough elements of truth in this. Um, now, the key difference in the book of Jonah is the book of Jonah, from everything we can tell, is a true story. But this can also be told in such a way as being satirical. Look at the, the next one. It's another example of satire. Cool, there's no line at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, says man moments before realizing it's Sunday. Uh, yes. This last Sunday, I, we, Cindy and I went to lunch with, uh, with a young couple. And uh, we were talking about places to eat, and both of us at the same time were about to say Chick-fil-A before realizing it was Sunday. All right, uh, let's look at the next one. Local man sets more realistic goal of reading Bible until he gets to Leviticus. Nobody in here, obviously. This is a different local man somewhere else. Um, some other midweek gathering, probably. All right, what else? Live, laugh, love sign discovered in Paul the Apostle's prison cell. Heartwarming heartwarming. That's how we made it through. All right, and then the last one. This one has a lot of truth. He has no idea what it is. <laughs> would have known you get your feelings hurt. I would have. All right, we joke about church sound guys get a lot of heat. I think Steve sent me one one time that said something along the lines of study shows everything church sound guys fault. Um, you know, so it's funny. It's funny because, you know, we get the rap, there's some element of truth in it, and so it's, it's a funny thing. Um, in the book of Jonah, there is a lot of humor. 
There's humor, there's irony, there are these great comparisons and contrasts that take place in the book of Jonah. But I want to be sure, we'll get to this in just a minute if you want to drop this, uh, clear this off. Um, but what I want to get to you is that this book of Jonah, when we understand how it's written, we can understand a lot of what's taking place in a more full way. And so, like I said, this is satirical, but it is a true story. Well, how do we know it's a true story? Well, first of all, Jonah is a real person. Jonah is a real person. If you go to the book of 2 Kings 14, don't worry about going there. You can study it yourself later if you want to dig into it. Um, but 2 Kings chapter 14, we read about Jonah. And in fact, Jonah, we see him here as a prophet. He is prophesying on behalf of God. He is being obedient to the calling of God to send forth this message. But the message that he has in 2 Kings 14 is a message that Jonah wanted to deliver because this was a message that was going to make him popular with those around him. In fact, what he was doing was he was prophesying that the nation of Israel would enlarge its borders, would overcome some of its enemies. And the king that he was prophesying on behalf of is a king named Jeroboam II. Um, Jeroboam II, though, was not the best king. And this was a guy who really liked Jonah. Um, when we have the approval, consistent approval of uh, wicked people, that um, might be a bad sign in your life, and that's what we find in Jonah. Uh, and Jonah here is friends with this king, uh, Jeroboam. Um, this king, Jeroboam, was named after Jeroboam I. He was responsible for splitting um, the nations of Israel, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so um, this Jeroboam II came a few generations later, later, but suffice to say, bad dude, Okay. He's not a good man, not a godly king. Instead, led the people away from God. Um, and then, again, what we see is we see this book validated in the New Testament. We see that Jesus even refers to Jonah. He speaks of the sign of the prophet Jonah, referring to eventually his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, and so this story is, from everything we can tell, a true story. There's not a good reason to look at this and believe it to be totally fictional, but it is written in such a way that the author contrasts some of these things and draws some of the funny elements of the story to the front. So I want to have some fun as we go through the story, and I want to see some of those things, understanding the book of Jonah. Um, but as we jump in here, remember that uh, satire is for the purpose of change. What we find in Jonah is we find engaging storytelling that draws us to some convicting realizations. It, when we're going through the book, what we're going to see is we're going to say, oh, that's pretty fun. Oh, that's amusing. Oh, look at that Jonah until we take a second and we realize, that's me. And the Holy Spirit convicts us through the story of Jonah. So here, as we jump into Jonah, um, last thing I want to mention about the book before we start reading the book is that this story is poetic, but it's not poetic maybe in the sense that you or I are used to. Um, when we read a poem, we almost expect 90% of poems, right, to rhyme and to give some kind of a, a distinct meter that we can follow and we can understand. That's how English rhyming works. Well, in Hebrew, um, rhyming is more a rhyming of thought. And so you'll see a lot of the irony, you'll see a lot of the comparisons, you'll see the contrasts, you'll see the uh, different ways of restating and retelling the thing. And so that's some of the things that we're going to look for tonight. And what we're going to look at is we're going to look at, in chapter number one, we're going to look at the sins of Jonah. The sins of Jonah. And as we see these, remember that this is a commentary on God's people. This is a commentary on the Old Testament Israel, but really a lot of these same characteristics we find true in our lives today. So let's start in verse number one. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. We're going to pause right there. <laughs> What we find immediately is that this is a book, this is a book about a prophet. The, that phrase uh, that the word of the Lord came unto, it specifically is speaking of a prophet of God. The word of God is coming. The word of Jehovah, the word of Yahweh is coming. And it comes unto a man by the name of Jonah, the son of Amittai. And even right in there, if you know this story and you understand the context, this is actually a funny sentence. Now you're looking at me and you're going... That's not a funny sentence. It's kind of funny that you think that's a funny sentence, all right? Um, here's why it's funny. If you have to explain the joke, it's not always funny, but I think you guys, I think you guys will be amused, okay? Especially those who know the story of Jonah. Um, does anyone know what the name Jonah means? It means dove. The name Jonah means dove. What does a dove represent? Well, a dove represents 
peace and purity, and it represents the Holy Spirit even took on the form of dove in the New Testament. This dove is this uh, harmless, you know, elegant thing. And Jonah's not really any of those things, right, as we look at the story of Jonah. And then it even says Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai means true or faithful. So what does his name mean? Dove, son of faithfulness. How does that relate to the story of Jonah as you know it? Like, oh, that's appropriately named, right? A lot of us, maybe some of us, you've named your kids. We've named some of our kids um, based on things we want to see in their lives. And dove, son of faithfulness, sounds like this, you know, oh, the meaning of that is so beautiful. Then we read his life and we're like, wait a second, this guy isn't peaceful. This guy isn't faithful. This guy is none of these things. And so immediately from the first sentence, we see this just dripping with irony. And so dove, the word of the Lord comes to dove, son of faithfulness, saying this. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And we see that word often, great. We see that used so many times throughout this book. We'll kind of highlight just in chapter one here when we see it. But uh, go into this great city and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. So this is kind of our first sign that this book, this is our first sign that all of us as English speakers should get that this book isn't ordinary. Um, because when the word of God comes to a prophet, who are those prophets going to? Is anyone is going to have an idea? Who do we usually see? Your gut's probably right if, you're, if you've studied through some of these passages. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet, and this prophet is supposed to go to what kind of people? You're like, Israelites. Sometimes to kings, sometimes to the people, but who is Jonah called to go to? The Ninevites a.k.a. not Israelites. This is the only prophet that we see in the Old Testament. We, we hear this call, go to this people, and he's going to speak to a people, asking them to repent, and they're not Israelites. This is uncommon. This is unusual. Nineveh, specifically, is the Assyrian capital. Um, and Nineveh is uh, the largest, probably the largest city in the day that Jonah is called, the largest city in the known world, in uh, what we would now consider some of the Western world. This was the head of an empire. Eventually, Assyria would be the nation that would come and would conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, and really send them into oblivion. Even now, today, the ten northern tribes, they're, they're gone. The, we, we don't know where they are. God obviously knows. God has has an understanding of the descendants of, but from an earthly perspective, they are gone. They're wiped out. When we look at Israel today, we even refer to them, uh, we say these are Jews, correct, or Jewish people. The New Testament refers to them as Jews. Uh, why? What does that mean? That's talking about Judah. They're descendants of Judah. The Assyrians, in that same vein, are not nice people. The Assyrians didn't uh, subjugate like some of the Babylonians or other empires would. The Assyrians wiped you off the face of the earth, Surrender or die, or maybe surrender and die, depending on how they feel that day. And the, the Assyrians are not gentle, they are not kind, they are not good people. And so God comes to Jonah and God says, go to Nineveh. Go to this people and cry against it because their wickedness has come up against me. And so we come to number three and Jonah rose up. Yes, go Jonah, dove, son of faithfulness. To flee, to flee, where does he, what is he doing? He's, I don't want to do that. No, thank you. Pass. Um, I have this running joke with uh, Pastor Paul. Um, we, have, we rotate lockup schedules for our staff um, for, for the church buildings after services and things like that. Every time he texts me saying, hey, just remind me you're on lockup tonight, I tell him, I say, pass, um, opt out, no thank you. <laughs> unsubscribe. I send these, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to, I always give them a hard time that I'm saying that I'm not going to do it. Um, listen, that doesn't really, doesn't really fly with God, does it? But here Jonah, this prophet of God, the dove, son of faithfulness, all of a sudden, what is he doing? He's fleeing, and we see this, he flees unto Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. And watch this phrasing here, I want to hit this just really quickly, and then I want to talk some about verse 3. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, went down into, the, into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so we see multiple times, even within that one verse, and we see a couple more times later, 
that theme going down, going down, going down. We see that Jonah, as he's trying to get away from God, is bringing himself down as he's even attempting to do this. It's a word that just jumps out multiple times throughout this passage. We're going to come back to it in just a few minutes, but I want to set the table there. But where is he going? Where is, where is Tarshish? And this is, this is that last slide that you have there. Where, where is Tarshish even at? Um, you guys probably can't even read this because it's so stretched out, so spread out, because it's so far away. Um, right here in the corner, this little clump of dots you see, that is Jerusalem to Joppa, probably 30 miles, give or take, okay? That's a trip. If you are uh, walking or on a mule or traveling, you know, a thousand years before Christ, that's a journey, 30 miles. Did anyone walk or run 30 miles today? No one? Okay. So he's intentionally doing this, right? And then watch this. You see point A right there, and then you see point B up here, Nineveh. And uh, there's still ruins there today. You can, we, we have a very strong idea of where Nineveh is. And so from Jerusalem to Nineveh would be about, about 500 miles. So that's a, that's a trek, right? Especially without a car, without anything like that. That's, that's a journey. Uh, Jerusalem to Tarshish, um, which there's a little bit of lack of clarity on exactly where that is, but almost everyone agrees it's right around Strait of Gibraltar, southern Spain, a.k.a. 2,500 miles. All right? So what's happening? Nineveh is northeast. And Jonah says, how far west can I go? If Jonah had known about North America, he probably would have beaten Columbus here, okay? He was like, get me away from Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. But even still, as we look at this, that even that begs its own question. Why was Jonah running from Nineveh? Now, some people throw out, they say, well, he was afraid, and you and I would be too, right? Um, and I think there's maybe some legitimacy to that, but I, I don't think that's the primary reason, and I'll tell you why. Um, go to Jonah chapter number three. Verse number 10. I'll tell you why, because Jonah tells us why. He says this, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. This is a spoiler alert. If you don't want to know the end of the story of Jonah, you should probably cover your ears. But God saw the works of the Ninevites after they repent, they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Verse number one of chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying? By the way, pause, take note right here, that Jonah prays to God in chapter number four. It seems irrelevant now. It's going to seem relevant later. Jonah prays to God in chapter four, angry with him that these people have repented and he allowed it, okay? Store that in the back of your mind. We're going to get there later. And what does he say? O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? What is he saying? God, you're going to let them repent and you're going to save them. Didn't I tell you that you would do this? He's angry with God. And then he says, therefore, because of that reason, I fled before unto Tarshish. Why? Because I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, so to anger of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. It's better for me to die than live. Why did he run from Nineveh. Why did he run from Nineveh? Because he hated the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He said, God, you would forgive them. I don't want that. There's not any fear here of the Ninevites taking it. He said, God, you're sending me to Nineveh because you're going to forgive them. You know they're going to repent. I don't want them to repent. Dove son of faithfulness, right? What is this? His prejudices against these people were so raw, were so inflamed, that he said, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to run away from this. And he doesn't even think about it. He doesn't even stay in Jerusalem and just say, no, I'm not going to do it. What does he do? God, I'm going to make this as difficult for you as possible. I'm going to go the other way. Why? Because he doesn't want the Ninevites 
to come to repentance. Instead, what does he do? He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof. I mean, he's an honest guy after all, and went down into it to go with him into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You see, he set his own course. He said, God, this is your desire, but this is my desire. Jonah's first sin here, and we can look at the prejudice, we could dig into that, and we could jump in there, we could probably sit in there all night. But really what he's doing, big picture, that that's an overflow of, is he's choosing his priorities in life over God's. The first sin of Jonah was he is choosing his priorities in life over God's. He is saying, God, I know this is what you've called me to do, but I would rather do this. And if we really stop and if we remember what is this, this is called to be, this book is designed to be a mirror whereby we look at Jonah and say, ha ha, that guy, and then realize that we're pointing at ourselves. And what do we find true in our own lives? So often our ideals Our idea of surrender is fighting and pulling against God's. Jonah, remember, Jonah was a prophet of God. Jonah was a man of God. He was well-liked among the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, He had prophesied successfully in the name of the Lord. And he knew the nature of God enough to know that these people would repent if he went there and preached this message. Jonah was not ignorant of the things of God. Jonah had the head knowledge. Jonah had the understanding. But Jonah also said, this is how I want to live my life. I want to be an Israel. I'm an Israelite, after all. I want to be an Israel. I like what I'm doing. I like where I'm living. I like the people I'm doing it with. I do not want to go to Nineveh. In fact, I hate those guys. And even the verbal call of God doesn't change that in his life. Now, all of us, of course, if God spoke verbally, we'd be like, I'm there, right? We like to think so, don't we? But yet, when we open up the word of God, when we study the word of God, and the word of God convicts and reveals to us areas that we are not surrendered, what do we do? All right, time's up. We're going to go do something else to distract us from the conviction that we now have because the word of God is speaking and moving within us. So often, what we do is we say, these are the spaces, God, that we're going to give you. These are the areas of my life that you can have, and you can have the 10% tithe even because we're just, oh, we're such good Christians that we give this, and oh, God, you can have me on Sunday morning, you can even have me on Sunday night, you can even have me on Wednesday night, but then when it comes to day to day and week to week, when it comes to the way that we interact with our coworkers, when God says, hey, that person's in need of the gospel, what do we do? We, we, We shrink from it so many times. When all of a sudden we're convicted about a way that we are behaving, a way that we are treating our spouse or our kids, or uh, God calls us to, to give and God calls us to give of our time, and we say, but God, I, don't, I have so many other things going on. And we, and we live busy lives, don't we? It's the American way. Okay, it's what we do. All right. Um, someone preached a message on that recently. Uh, all right. I'm just kidding. I was just kidding. That was me. All right. So what happens? What do we do? We say, God, I don't have time for this. But if God's calling us to do it, where's our priority? When God calls us to move and we say, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources, I don't have the energy, I don't have the ability, but God's saying, do it, whose priority are we living in? We're living in our priority. We're saying, God, yeah, I get that, but I'm going to do this instead. Yeah, God, I understand, but I'm going to do this instead. And we live our life based on our vision for our life. And sometimes that's the most difficult thing to give up, the vision that we have for our lives. From the time that we're young, we, we get ingrained in us, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And, and there's nothing, I don't think, wrong with those questions. I think you're in creating curiosity within your kids, but all of a sudden when they get older, we start saying, follow your heart. That's terrible advice. Because the Bible teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it's going to drag us every which way. We don't, we don't even, I don't even know what my heart wants. Are you kidding me? And I'm almost a grown man, okay? <laughs> I don't even know what my heart wants. It's unbelievable. But yet we, we say, oh, follow that as if that's going to reveal something to us. Let me tell you, don't, don't follow that. Follow the word of God and follow the spirit of God. Because understand that God designed you with a purpose, God designed you with something in mind. And God 
knows where he wants you. He knows what he wants you doing. He designed, he has this, there's this gap that he has built you to fill. And if you go pursuing the thing that your heart is yanking you to and from about, there is something that he has called you and designed you to do. And you're never going to find that fulfillment. You're never going to find that peace that you're looking for. You're never going to be satisfied and happy chasing after happiness. You're going to be satisfied chasing after God. Because he says, you hunger and seek after righteousness, you'll be filled. You'll be filled. So Jonah's first sin is he chose his priorities over God's. And then I love, I love this quick transition because watch, watch the very end, last part of verse 3. Um, to go with him into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, all of a sudden, but the Lord, God has something to say about this. So Jonah is going to run from, if you see that, that word Lord, it's going to be important here in a minute. You see that word Lord, all capitalizations, if you're using a King James Bible, a few other translations follow that practice as well. It's referring to Yahweh. That is the personal name of the God of Israel, the real true God, the maker of heaven and earth, Yahweh. And so he's running from the presence of Yahweh, but Yahweh. But Yahweh, but the Lord. And understand that sometimes God ruins our best plans, doesn't he? Sometimes God ruins our best plans. And in fact, he ruins the plans. There's plans that we really wouldn't be satisfied pursuing anyways. But the Lord, what does he do? Sent out a great wind into the sea. See that again, just that great wind. It's a great ship. There's a great wind. There's a great city of Nineveh. And there's a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Okay, so everyone's panicking. Everyone's panicking. And in fact, in the Hebrew, um, that word like, that phrase like to be broken was like the ship was thinking about breaking apart. Okay, so everyone, including the ship, is panicking. All right. Everybody's, uh, the ship is like, guys, I can't take this anymore. That's kind of the, 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 the storytelling going on here. And watch what it even says. About the mariners, verse 5, were afraid. That's how you know it's bad, okay? If you've ever been out on the sea, if you've ever been out on a ship, if the captain's not panicking, you're probably okay. When the captain panics, panic. Like, just panic at that point. You're, just, you're fine to panic. The mariners are panicking, these are trained men. These are men that were uh, familiar with the seas. And they cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. And so these guys are tossing things out of the ship so they can control it a little bit better, trying to maintain this. Really, it's a futile thing that they're doing because we know that God's the one sending this, so they're not going to be able to fight against God. But they, they don't quite know that yet. They will in a minute. Uh, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. See that, see that word once again. He was gone down into the sides of the ship. And he lay. So finally, he's laying down. He's down in the deepest part of the ship, and he's not even standing in the deepest part of the ship. He's laying down in the deepest part of the ship. He's like at the belly of the ship. And he was fast asleep. Bold move, Jonah. Fast asleep. So what happens? Bible tells us, so the shipmaster came to him, the captain of the ship comes to him, and says unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call on thy God. Wait a second, you notice, you notice the way that thy God is put in there? What's different about that versus what we just talked about a minute ago at the beginning of verse number four? One is Lord, Yahweh. This is God. In Hebrew, Elohim, if you care, um, that is kind of the generic term. Or God, it's, it's called to your God. What does he say when he, when he says your God, thy God? He's saying, you have your God, I have my God. And really what's going on right now is that all of these men are praying to their own gods. They're all, this is, they're coming from a polytheistic background. These are probably, these are probably Phoenicians. Um, if you've studied some ancient history, Phoenicians were uh, great sailors, some of the first, uh, probably the first nation to actually have a uh, organized navy of any sort, and so really impressive works that they're doing. So these guys know what's up. They've constructed a good ship, all of these things, but they're polytheistic, and so what are they doing? They're saying, I'm going to call on my God. Steve, you call on that God, okay? And Joe, I know you worship the same God as Steve does, but call on this God instead because Steve's going to try to appease that one. I'm going to appease this one. Uh, if, you could, if you could, and if you could, and they're going to kind of shotgun all the gods that they can think of because what happens in this polytheistic mindset is that one of the gods is angry with us and we've got to figure out what's wrong and who we angered. 
And so you try to appease that one, you try to appease that one, you, 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 and we're all going to pray to a different God. Hopefully we can cover them all or at least have a good chance of finding out which one we angered. And so that's what's taking place here. And so the shipmaster comes and says, Jonah, you call to your God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. But you know what's really, really ironic about all of this? Who is calling Jonah to pray? Who is confronting the man of God about his prayer? It's this captain who's lost and doesn't even know who Yahweh is. He's saying, hey, why don't you pray to your God, not knowing that Jonah is a prophet of the true God, and he's the one challenging him to pray. Doesn't make any sense. This is the ungodly calling the godly, supposedly, to repentance. And I think that if this happened in our culture today, and sometimes it probably does, that Jonah would have probably told him off, how dare you? But, but Jonah, as soon as he said it, he's like, I think he's like, that guy's right. Does he do anything about it? No, not really. <laughs> but he's like, that guy's right. But the imperfect messenger here spoke truth to Jonah. And the man who didn't even know the faithful God came and called Jonah, the son of faithfulness, to call out to God. And what does it say? And they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots. The lot fell upon Jonah. They said unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thy occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? What people art thou? I mean, they're, they're grilling them, right? They're like, okay, so what do you do that this is going on? Where are you coming from? Where are you from? Uh, what, what people group? What nationality? What God do you serve? All of these things. Uh, and they're coming at him, and they are, they're pressing into him. Uh, before we jump whole hog into this, understand Jonah's second sin. His second sin was that he thought his sin would only affect himself. Jonah thought his sin would only affect himself. Jonah went down in there, sleep, he went down and slept. And in fact, we're going to see in just a minute that he does actually have some type of compassion for these men because he's going to help them to be rescued, help the this, this storm to be calmed, and he's going to do all of those things. But Jonah goes in here knowing that he is uh, offending and sinning against God, thinking that this sin is only going to affect him. He doesn't think that this is going to be something that affects all of them. And this is really one of the biggest lies that our culture tells us, really both of these two things. Funny, funny that this is like a 3,000-year-old, outdated, irrelevant book, right? Um, that we're all of a sudden talking about our plans and our surrender versus God's, and uh, we're talking about uh, sin not being something that we can only decide for ourselves and doesn't affect other people. Because our culture tells us, I make a mistake, it affects who? Me. Our culture tells us that as long as I do something, as long as uh, anyone else involved is consenting, as long as uh, it doesn't affect other people, that it's okay. But understand that uh, sin never just affects the person that is offended. Uh, your sin is going to affect those around you. Your sin is going to have uh, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It is going to trickle out. It's going to affect those that you care about. It's going to affect those that you work with. It's going to affect those in your home. It's going to affect those that you worship with. It's going to affect other people. Your sin never, never stays small. It never stays local. It always grows out, and it always affects others. And what's funny is that our culture says some of these things, and all of a sudden, we, you know, a politician gets into some kind of a scandal, and their sin that was private now affects other people, and we're all up in arms about it, but our culture is like, but you know, what's private could stay private. Sin affects other people. Your sin is never going to only affect you, and sometimes we convince ourselves that if no one else knows, and if, if no one else uh, understands this is going on, if it's just me, it doesn't affect, it's not going to hurt anyone else, it's it will always, it will always affect other people. No one ever sins alone. No one ever sins in isolation. And whatever it is that's being hidden from God, it's going to be made known. God himself promised this. He says, be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. I understand that when we reap, we reap greater than we sow. There's a time period between, right, sowing and reaping, all right? Anyone in agriculture, you don't sow. Anyone plant a garden, you don't sow and then reap the next day, right? It's a process. But then when you do reap, 
You reap what you sow, and you reap more than you sow. Every time. And so Jonah sowed disobedience, but now these men are in danger. Now these men are being affected by it. Now there are others that have been brought into Jonah's sin. And what happens next? How does he answer? All right, so they they ask, what's your job? Where are you coming from? What's your country? What people are you? All right, and he says this. I'm in Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven. What, what, what does he immediately like, skip over? He, he doesn't, does he go, I am a prophet of God. I'm a prophet of Yahweh. No. I don't know if he had resigned from that position in his mind or if he had, uh, was embarrassed to tell them about it. I don't know, but he just conveniently skips over it. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceeding afraid and said to him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. It's it's kind of fascinating what he does here. It's almost like um, you guys watch a movie, you see the flashback at the beginning or whatever. This is almost like a flashback to the first couple verses where it's like the men knew. They were like, wait a second. That's right. You said you were running from God. You know, imagine customs, you know, they're coming under the ship, and he's like, all right, what's your purpose of travel, business, or pleasure? And he's like, running from God, and okay, come on in, all right? If you don't care, pay your fare, and it's fine. Double your fare, maybe just in case, all right? But they, he comes into the ship, and they're just, now they're, wait a second. Oh, no. Oh, no. You worship, and you're running, and they realize what is going on. Watch, and watch what he says, watch what he says here, um, then said they unto him, what shall we do unto thee that the sea may calm unto us? The sea was raw and tempestuous. And he said unto them, take me up, cast me into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Let me, let me ask you this question. Why didn't he say, hey, let's go back to Joppa? I mean, like I, I would like to think that if, if he said, hey, let's try going back to Joppa and then God sees that, and right, he's like, okay, I'll come the storm, boom, Jonah, you're on your way. Is that what happens here? What does Jonah say? Throw me over. It's almost like he's trying to make it harder for God. It's almost like he's trying to make it more difficult for God. Because does Jonah know anything about the great fish and everything that's coming here? No. We don't have any reason to think he does. Throw me over. And what's he think is going to happen next? Is he swimming back to land? No, what is he doing? He's, he's probably thinking, all right, I'm, I'm done for. Throw me over. But in his mind, better dead than in Nineveh. <laughs> I think he thinks he's sticking it to God here. He's going, throw me over. Because God's not going to punish you guys. He understands God enough to know God's not going to Punish you guys, he's coming for me. God is merciful, and, and God will show mercy on you, and, and you now fear Yahweh, you understand that he is th- this God. Uh, but what, what does he say? He says, throw me over. Throw me over. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. So they resisted, they said, Jonah, we can't do that, and they tried to go. And I don't know if they were trying to go back to Joppa in their minds, even though Jonah didn't want to, or what was going on here. Because even still, if you understand, you know, if they're going back to Joppa, Jonah gets back to land. God, God had this whale for this fish, whatever this thing is. We, we know great fish of some sort. We know that God had prepared this for Jonah, as we're going to see in a few minutes. And so God says, no, you're not going to go if you get back to the shore. This is what's happening. And so what, what does he say? Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, for thou, Yahweh, has done as it pleased thee. So now they are praying to Yahweh. They in unison, no longer are they shotgunning this, They pray in unison to Yahweh. They're crying out to Jonah's God. They took Jonah, they cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. You know what's interesting here? Uh, Verse number nine, Jonah tells us, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and dry land. He said, this is the God that has the power over sea and dry land. The funny part is, is obviously he doesn't fear 
the Lord God who made the sea and dry land. Obviously, he's lying about that. He worships. He fears, okay, yes, this God. But he's even saying this is the God that's able to do these things. And then as soon as they throw him over, what takes place? The sea ceases from her raging. Then the the men feared the Lord exceedingly. So they weren't afraid of God before this. Now they're afraid of God. Remember, if you remember to the uh, New Testament, um, this storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is in the ship, and there's some parallels with this story where Jesus is sleeping, but he's sleeping for a different reason. The disciples are panicking, and, and they, are, they are crying out to Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care that we perish? And Jesus stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And what's the disciples' response? They feared. They said, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the sea, they obey him. What is going on? And so now these men fear even more because God had calmed the storm. They see that this is the God that had caused these things to happen. And then what do they do? They offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. You see, Jonah said he feared God. These men actually did. They offered a sacrifice. And actually, the sacrifice of this is going to be an animal sacrifice. Okay, there's fire involved, and what were the ships made of at this time? This, they're made of wood. Okay, this is probably something that they did once they got to land. When they got to land, they found, uh, they found something that they could use as a sacrifice, and they now offered a sacrifice and vowed a vow. From everything we can tell, this was a conversion moment for these men. These men now were followers of God. They're now seeking after and understanding worship of the true God, even though Jonah was faithless. In chapter 1, How many times do we see Jonah pray? Remember we talked about in chapter 4 when he's angry with God, right? Then he prays. Um, In chapter 2, there's a long prayer to God when he's finally brought low. How many times do we see Jonah pray in chapter number 1? We don't. In all of this, Jonah says, I fear Yahweh. I fear God. I worship God. Does he even acknowledge him in any real way? The heathen, the lost, the ones who never heard about Yahweh, they prayed to him. They converted. They offered sacrifices to him. But the guy who is supposed to be the one that is a uh, called of God, that is a child of God, that is part of the nation that God had called out from among the people, there's no faith in him. This is Jonah's third sin. Jonah's third sin, he refused to live what he said he believed. He refused to live what he said he believed. On the outside, yes, this is how I ought to be. This is how I ought to treat people. This is how I ought to interact. Yes, oh, everyone, they're made in the image of God. Oh, yes, they are this, and they're valued by God. But but then go the other way, and... Can you believe that person? Oh, what an idiot. Oh, man, check. Oh, man, yeah, all they do is. That doesn't happen in any churches today, does it? Christians today, oh, we always live the way that we say that we believe, don't we? It's a good thing this is an outdated, irrelevant book. It doesn't contain any truth that is helpful for us today. Jonah here, we look at him and we say, ha, ah, Jonah, can you believe that guy? He doesn't even pray to Yahweh. He doesn't even call on Yahweh. He, he says, I fear Yahweh. <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. The word of God convicts. We read from it that this is how we ought to live our lives. We, we say that there's a place called hell. We say that we believe that those who don't know God and don't know Christ as their Savior but die will go to said place. Can we all agree that's not a good thing, right? We we aren't rejoicing in this thing. And then who do we go and tell about it? 
Who do we go and try to reach for the cause of Christ? We say, oh, Jesus, living a life for Jesus is the only way to live, but who do we pass that message on to? We say Toledo needs Jesus, and we want to be a church that starts churches across this area. When was the last time we invited someone to church? When was the last time that, for some of us, when was the last time we opened up our Bibles and even read it for ourselves? I mean, do you know that the Bible talks about these things, or do you just know it because a pastor gets up and tells you and you heard it in Sunday school one time? Like, where is our hunger for God? We say we believe these things. We say that the word of God is true. We say that the Bible is the word of God. Do we value it? Well, what kind of time do we, do we study it? Or do we just like check off our, oh, I read it three times this week for seven seconds at a time. I did my verse of the day or whatever. And listen, if you're coming from a place where this is, you're new to faith and you're, uh, you're growing in this and hey, listen, if you go from nothing to verse a day, awesome. I am thrilled for you. You are taking steps in the right direction. That's such a great thing. If you've been in church for 20 years and verse a day is what you're doing, I have four kids, okay? Um, my three-month-old boys, they pick their head up and smile. I'm like, oh! My two-year-old, if she, you know, doesn't climb out of her bed and go crazy when she's in her room, I'm like, good job! My three-year-old, if she does either of those two things, I'm like, listen, you know better than that. And then... If I behave the way that they behave because I want to, my wife goes, what are you thinking, right? She's like, you know better than this. Doesn't happen very often. We expect different things of maturity, don't we? We expect growth. Any healthy thing grows. And so don't, I don't want you to walk away from me like, oh, I'm so discouraged because I should be doing this when I'm doing this. If you are new in your faith or you are growing in your faith, that is a beautiful thing. Don't take that for granted and don't think that anyone in here is sitting there saying, you ought to be measuring this standard, not this standard. But let me tell you this. If you have been around church or if you, if you know to do right, if you have heard these things and you have been uh, living this lifestyle for years and none of this has affected you, there's something wrong. We're finding ourselves like Jonah, where Jonah says, yes, I fear God. But do you, Jonah? But do you? I mean, if we, if we read chapter number one, knowing everything we know now, even just even the context, no application, and we look at that, and I said, all right, raise of hands, who thinks Jonah fears God? There's not a hand going up in here, right? We're all saying, son of faithfulness. Ah. No. We don't give Jonah a pass, but then all of a sudden we want to give ourselves because, oh, but, but you know, I, I this and I that. Hey, God's priority is my priority. The first sin of Jonah, his priority was his priority. Forget you, God. The second sin of Jonah, what, is, what does he do? A sin's only, it's only going to affect me. It's not going to, it's just, I, I'm going to do this, and if I die, I die. At least I don't have to go to Nineveh, am I right? And the final sin of Jonah. He refused to live what he said he believed. But understand that imperfect messengers can still point people to a perfect God. God is still at work in this passage, isn't he? We see men even coming to faith in Yahweh, even through this sinful man. God is at work. But Jonah's missing it. Jonah's missing it. His spiritual apathy is excluding him from understanding and seeing and witnessing the grace of God at work. And so often we can tend to drift into a Jonah culture. Yeah, God will do that through those people over there that get paid to do it or through those volunteers that they're just kind of crazy about it and they just, they're all about that Jesus thing. God, God will use them, but understand, that we're, we're missing out on this. If we say those people can do that, that's great for them, we are missing out on this. Yeah, God can work, but it's our responsibility, it's our privilege to look and to say, Jesus, where are you working and how can I join in that work? How can I be a part of doing the things that you are doing? There's no greater thrill in life. There's nothing more fulfilling and there's nothing more eternal 
than knowing that what you are doing is a part of the eternal and everlasting work of God. And as we just poke into chapter 2 as we close, all of a sudden we find Jonah broken. He's brought low. Verse 17 leads us into this. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God. You see, God had to bring him so low. I think Jonah, I, 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 this, is, this is totally opinion. I don't find this in the Bible, but I wonder if Jonah got to the point that he says, okay, God, you're not even going to let me die in here, are you? Even if it was true or not, in his mind, I wonder if he got to the point where he's like, God, you're bringing me to this place, and I'm, I'm trapped here. I just, want, I just want it to be over. But God, you were pursuing me. Because finally, as he's broken, he's brought low. God saves him. Verse number two in chapter two, I, I cried for reason of mine affliction, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, thou heardest my voice. Look at uh, verse number nine. Uh, look at verse number six first. I went down to the bottoms of the mountain. The earth with her bars was about me forever. See that again? I went down. See that phrase again? Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. See, God even had mercy on Jonah. Jonah didn't deserve any kind of mercy, did he? He was repeatedly offending God pushing against God, rebelling against God. See, the, the, the mariners, I at least, I have, I have some like, I feel for the mariners, right? Because they're like, you guys I didn't, didn't even know who Yahweh was, and now you saw who Yahweh was, and so you're sacrificing God of mercy on you. Duh. Awesome. Jonah, I'm kind of like, even Jonah, I find myself kind of like, God, Jonah's a bum. What are you doing with Jonah? And then, and then I remember, oh yeah, that's me. Oh yeah, that's me. See, God has mercy even on us. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then, then he tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my question for you tonight is, do you see yourself falling to the sins of Jonah? Do you see yourself putting your priorities over God's? Do you see yourself buying into the lie that your sins only affect you? Do you see yourself refusing to live what you say that you believe. If you find yourself in any one of these spaces, my question is this, will you bring yourself low or are you going to make God do it? Will you bring yourself low? Get these sins out of your life. Repent, turn to God. He wants to use you. He wants you to come and partner with him in the work that he's doing. God could have sent a, a pillar of fire to Nineveh and turned them to repent, but that's not how God chooses to work. God likes to work through people. God likes to use you and use me. And it's the greatest privilege of our lives to be used by God. So you see these things in your life. Are you going to bring yourself low? Are you going to come to him humbly, repent of these things? Or are you going to wait for God to try to do these things for you? Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you that we can gather